Welcome everybody to another edition of IGN Unfiltered, our monthly chat show where we uh, sit down with the best, brightest, most notable minds in the why video game industry. Why am I industry. here? <laughs> uh, you know why you're here. We're going to get to all that. Peter Moore, you are the uh, eSport, the chief competition officer. That's correct. Got the title correct yeah. these days at Electronic Arts, but you've worn many hats in mm -hmm. the video game industry, and uh, we'll get to them all. Of course, you uh, were very prominent at Sega in the Dreamcast yep. days and at Microsoft on the Xbox team during the 360 days. If you saw Podcast Unlocked 201, that's actually why we're even doing this show right now, which you are very kind to be on. I appreciate that. But there's so much more to talk to you about than just Xbox. So I wanted to start with uh, the fact that You've been at Sega, you've been yep. at Microsoft, you've been at EA, you've been at Reebok. Yep. You, uh, you were a PE teacher, a physical education teacher uh, yep. years and years ago. So uh, the first thing I want to ask you is, what did you want to be when you were a kid? If, if you, with that kind of eclectic <laughs> background, what, what did young Peter Moore uh, see Young Peter himself? Moore wanted to be a footballer, uh, yeah. a, a soccer player. Young Peter Moore, well, Peter Moore was born in Liverpool uh, uh, in the mid-50s, and to this day, uh, has a love for Liverpool Football Club. They were a very important part of my life growing up. Um, from that, as a footballer, I parlayed a love into education mm -hmm. and was fortunate enough to be admitted into a physical education college uh, in England during that period of time. There were specialty colleges, and I went to Maidley College of Physical Education in Staffordshire, which is in the kind of the Midlands of England. And, uh, and then was a PE teacher for four and a half years. But during that time, I was uh, fortunate enough to be able to come over to America and kick a ball around and uh, coached a lot, which I thoroughly enjoyed doing uh, in the Midwest and in Cleveland, and got a real love for America, for, for the culture, for the lifestyle, and sense of optimism. Yeah. And anybody could do anything. It was tough times in the UK during that period, and uh, came over permanently in, in, in 1981 and lived in Long Beach, California. And had a kind of a career as a coach for a little while before I decided I needed a real job. Yeah, how do you how do you pivot from from education into and coaching into the business world? Well, you need to eat, you need to pay your rent, you need to support your family and and what was happening is you kind of take stock of yourself when you come as an immigrant, which which I was, I am yeah. uh, into this country and 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 with not a lot of money. Um, and uh, you know, you say what what do I have going for me? Well, I can kick a ball. I understand uh, soccer. I understand the game itself. I can speak about it. I have a British accent, which I was able to parlay from a sales perspective. <laughs> Even and you saying the word parlay. Just parlay. Sounds, well, that sounds, <laughs> sounds more French. Well, it sounds better than what <laughs> Americans say. Uh, and, and a great work ethic that comes from my mom and dad. Um, I grew up in a pub uh, and watched them work incredibly hard, 24 hours a day. So I said, I really need a job. So it was... Um, it was a tough time. My, my girlfriend, then my wife, and I we got married on the Queen Mary in, in, in 1982, um, having you know tough time making ends meet. Uh, had our now 30 odd eldest, uh, 30 odd years of age eldest child, Tara, um, and uh, I needed a real job that could provide real income. Yeah. Um, and so I got a job as a commission sales rep for a, a soccer shoe company called Patrick. Um, and commission sales rep means you better be selling, otherwise you're right. not eating, uh, you're not paying the bills. Um, so I had a Toyota Camry. Uh, lived Reliable in Sony. car. Absolutely, with the Patrick logo on the side, which almost said, steal me. <laughs> um, and a bunch of samples and, and, and taught myself how to sell, taught myself uh, how to be able to 
build sales programs. Um, and at night, I was going to Cal State Long Beach, where I did my master's degree, to keep me legal in the country. So you would be doing you know, what you needed to do during the day, make sure I got back to Long Beach and uh, go to school at night to get my master's degree whilst we were trying to get our green cards. So the moral is hard work is really, you don't just become the, the chief competition officer at EA. There, is, there are years, thousands of hours of hard, long work that go Hundreds into Hundreds of it. thousands of hours. When you, when you think from whence you came and, and the journey that, uh, like a lot of immigrants that I was on, which teaches you a lot, and, and to this day you use those experiences, those skills, um, in, in a slightly bigger world in which I now am very fortunate to live in. But yeah, those were, those were both fun days, difficult days, but they helped form who I am. And having never been to business school, having no formal business education, it was very important that I, I went through that period. So does, does, the, does that explain Reebok then? You were already sort of in the shoe world. You ended yep. up at Reebok for almost 20 years. No, no, not 20. It was not 20. Uh, nine years at Reebok. Nine years. Yeah. I've got 20 years bad in, information. 20 Fire years my in research goods. Yeah, 20 years in sporting goods. Uh, Patrick was 11 years. I mean, just to finish that story, uh, ended up in Northern California, mm -hmm. which I now feel is my spiritual home. Yeah. Uh, and um, ended up being president of the U.S. subsidiary. So I had the good fortune to go from commission sales rep to sales manager to ultimately the, the president of the U.S. subsidiary. Caught the attention of Reebok uh, out in Boston, who were looking at that period to try and really compete hard in the global sports market. Right. This thing called soccer was, was <laughs> on the horizon. Reebok wasn't in soccer. Nike wasn't in soccer. It was really the domain of Adidas, Puma, as I would say in those days, Puma, Lotto and Diodoro, which are brands that uh, if you played soccer a while back, you will remember. And um, my job was to put Reebok on the soccer market, was to build a, a product line to go get players, um, and to build a business model that would allow us to use soccer as a platform by which the Reebok brand would grow on a global basis. So uh, before we get to the, your video game career, I'm curious in the context of the shoe business, was there anything you learned in the, in the shoe and sneaker business that, that applied to the video game world? Well, during that period, Ryan, uh, and, and the reason that, that I became attracted to the video game world is I was a marketer to teenage boys. And during that period, that was who video games were. demographic, yeah. yeah. And, and so there was this concept. I, was, uh, I ended up as senior vice president of global sports marketing for Reebok. So the, the, the brands that we had, not just Reebok, but, but been building basketball bands like above the rim that we had and, and using athletes. Um, somehow, I, I, I was going to say parlayed, but I, I'm going <laughs> to but, but leverage that into a, a completely different career. Um, one of the things I love living in Boston, but those New England winters can be brutal. And by the end of the 90s, it was very clear that Nike was on an absolute tear. It was a very difficult time for Reebok, and so it was time at 45 years of age or something to reinvent myself. And um, got, a, got a call from a recruiter one day that said, what do you know about video games? And <laughs> the story then took off from there. Well, and that's, you know, you, uh, you've said that you didn't, you weren't a gamer, you know, right. but you, you obviously are knee deep, neck deep in it these days, if not higher. Yeah. Uh, what are some of your more recent favorite games that you've, that you've that maybe, that, let's not count EA games. Oh, prior to that, well, let's, let's talk Sega. I mean, yeah. gosh, uh, I was talking to somebody the other day, somebody 
stop me in an airport and recognize me more from the Sega days than they do from currently yep. EA days. And as I often do with Sega fans, we go back and we think about our favorite games during that period, 99, 2000. And we think about, and I would still argue, that the lineup for the Dreamcast at launch with, with the amount of new IP that yeah. so many third parties, as well as uh, Sega as a first party itself, but you think about Soul Calibur, Trickstyle, Hydro Thunder, Ready to Rumble, obviously Sonic the Hedgehog Adventures. Um, you think about us being able to build our own sports line, because we had to, because my current employer did not publish for the Virtual Dreamcast. Tennis, there was Virtual World Tennis, Series Baseball. Absolutely, NFL 2K, NBA yeah. 2K, ironically, NHL 2K. <laughs> um, and, and we had to build... Um, we had to build a lineup um, that would be ready down the road for online gaming, which, yeah. was, which was coming. Uh, and we had built SegaNet as well as part of that, literally five blocks from where we're sat right <laughs> here. Um, and uh, from that perspective, you know, uh, those games, Seaman, I mean, the games that I really look back and just smile about, Seaman was as quirky a game, not even a game, as quirky <laughs> an experience yeah. on, on a video game console that you'd ever had. Um, Samba de Migo, which we would crank out at parties and play, and you know, it's monkeys with sombreros and maracas. <laughs> what can possibly go wrong with all of that? Um, and then you look at some of the more um, interesting games, and Sega would try everything to try and be innovative and different. Fantasy Star Online, Choo Choo oh, Rocket. Such good memories, you know. Um, Space Channel 5. Right, so you think about those game experiences, and such a easy. I'm saying it now, all different genres, and some of them defy genres. You know, a lot of music games of that period of time. Um, Sam Amigo may have been ahead of its time as regards a motion game. Sure, you know, um, and such a talented development teams back. Of course, Shenmue, as controversial as it is popular, and Yu Suzuki's team, House of the Dead, um, Nakagawa's team. Um, and, you, and I just think very fondly of those days. Now, it didn't turn out so well, but it was an incredible immersion for me. I arrived at Sega in February. I became the president COO by, as the senior vice president marketing, I became president COO by August, and we Man. launched on nine nine ninety nine. And so in that short period of time, I had to immerse myself in a world, get up to speed on everything, launch what I thought was one of the more innovative marketing programs around a We're going to talk launch. about that in a second. And uh, all that in the space of about seven months and all that within a few blocks of here. Unbelievable. Yeah. Uh, so since you weren't into games, I mean, you mentioned the recruiter calling you. What attracted you to the job at Sega? Was it simply wanting a new challenge out of the, uh, away from Reebok where you didn't feel, you know, that they were they were uh, as strong a competitor, or was there something about the, the video game industry or something about Sega that particularly attracted you to that I think position? it's a combination of everything there. I mean, certainly coming back to the West Coast was attractive. Yeah. Love New England, still a Boston fan and, 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 and New England sports fan to this day, but, but those winters were brutal. Um, secondarily, um, Reebok was going through such a difficult time. We had, we had thought in our minds that as a brand, that we could compete with Nike. And Nike added $10 billion to net revenue from when I got to Reebok to when I left Reebok. Was that the, the, the post-pump era or still the you know, Dee Brown a, pumping it up before the dunk D, contest? Dee Brown and, 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 and bending over and pumping it up before the dunk was, was just before I arrived. Okay. But, but the Insta-pump and the pump, they were all, it was all part of who we were. The problem was that, that what Nike then grasped was a brand identity I don't want to say arrogant, but irreverent. 
challenging the um, establishment. Yeah. They weren't, in those days, they were not sponsoring anything. They, they started to get into it in the mid-90s, but... Well, they had Jordan, right? Well, they had Jordan, but, but that was less of a sponsorship. More, he was, he was embedded in the DNA True. of who they were. But yeah. when I say sponsor anything, there was no major sponsorships of tournaments. They, they wanted to be the athlete's brand, and rightly so. And they felt that if they sponsored Olympics or sponsored, you know, U.S. national track and field team. Now, this changed rapidly, um, you know, over the last 15, 20 years, obviously. But during that period of time, you know, they, they were, I always remember being in Atlanta for the 96 Olympics. And, and, you know, we, during that period of time, and the Dream Team wore a Reebok. And you remember that Jordan draped the Stars and Stripes over his tracksuit top because he didn't want the right. vector, the Reebok logo, to yeah. be seen. But, you know, it... It was that combination I thought Reebok's having such a difficult time. And then this, the more I talked to the recruiter about Sega, an online connected entertainment, it's very clear to me that, and again, not easy to reinvent yourself at 45 years of age. Or any age for that. Yeah, but well, you know, it's some, the younger you are, the more you can try things differently. I was a PE I am a PE teacher, right? That just happens to have got into sporting goods and now is... Been, been, been graced with, with 17 years in video games. But you, it just, there was something there that said, wait a second, you can, you can plug in, remember, a 56K board oh, yeah. modem, right? You can plug this in and you start playing against people, not just on your couch, but around the world. Um, Sega as a brand was still, was and still very special um, for what they had done for a decade prior to that, particularly with the Sega Genesis. And the more I delved into it, I said, this is fascinating. Um, and I thought it played into my skill sets as well at that time of marketing to young teenage males and everything you needed to do. The irreverency of what we tried to do in sneakers yeah. is what then I tried to bring with the Sega Dreamcast with the campaign that we did. And then I've always loved being a challenger brand. Certainly Reebok versus Nike was a challenger brand. I was brand. just thinking that. Yeah, you seem yeah. to have a thing for the underdog. I love it because go, you, Whether you it's, can do it's things Sega differently. Sega or Xbox or Reebok. Yeah, you can absolutely do things differently. You can be more on the front foot, you can be more aggressive because you need to be. And that, quite frankly, suited my personality and fitted my personality as a marketer in those days, much more so having fun tweaking Sony PlayStation, yeah. having fun in, in both instances, actually, with both Sega and, uh, and, and Xbox. And of course, ironically, great partners of ours now <laughs> at EA. But those are fun times, and those are the console wars. Um, and that was the other thing, is that the recruiter said, you're in the middle of the sneaker wars, and the only other thing that we can think about that is, you know, us versus them are the console wars, right? right? You were a Reebok or a Nike guy. <laughs> now you're in the, today you're a Sega or a Nintendo guy, and Sony coming through as well, obviously. But So that was the, the linkage to the two. The moment I got into, arrived here south of market, um, and, and, and got to learn about what this industry is about, I was hooked. So uh, you're, you're, every time I see you, you're super well dressed. But on the weekends, when you're jogging, when you're out, are you still wearing? <laughs> I Reeboks? don't wear my. No, no, still not a Reebok guy. It takes you a while to be blunt to um, not feel guilty about wearing uh, another brand because when right. you work for a brand like a Reebok, you're fortunate that you've got Reebok. You also have Rockport. You had Greg Norman Golf, so there was enough that you could do. But you were Reebok. You were not going to wear the swoosh. Probably took me a year where I. <laughs> Gingerly put on a pair of <laughs> Nike Pegasus, which are the running shoes that I run into this day. So, uh, according to uh, my research, which we've already established how solid that Could is, be flawed. Uh, your your son had a Saturn when you took the Sega yes. job. Uh, so, was he even more excited about you working at Sega than you were at the time? Um, 
So the, the story on the Saturn is, is Tyler, in full disclosure, IGN employee. <laughs> yes. Uh, you know, we, we wanted a video game console. Uh, we bought a Sega Saturn. And I seem to remember it cost me $500 at the time. And then a year later, I'm saying, okay, well, what games are we doing? He said, they've stopped making games. I'm going, how can this be? <laughs> how can this be? <laughs> and it, it may have been two years later, but, and we all know the history yeah. of the Saturn. Um, yeah. but, but that was my only experience uh, in video games up to that point. It was a rather frustrating one with what was about to be my new employer. Right. Um, was there anything that you, that you thought you knew about the video game industry when you came in that turned out to be wildly wrong? I really thought it was, it was boys in their bedrooms. I mean, and I use that phrase a lot because that's what it seemed to be at that time. Yeah. But we were on the cusp then of making this a broader-based entertainment. So as I'm thinking through in 1999 I'm with, with, with my team, I think, how do we make this sound bigger than just a console launch? Um, I always remember, gosh, flying up to Portland to see Hollywood video and sitting <laughs> in Portland Airport. With Another underdog. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, but with Chris Gilbert, uh, who was my head of sales, and I'm saying, we've got to make this bigger than just video games. We're entertainment. And so we did some quick research on, I said, what is the biggest 24 hours in, in, in retail entertainment? Like, let's do some research, um, try to figure out. It wasn't easy. Google wasn't around in those days. But we figured out. <laughs> Some, it was a movie, uh, it was maybe a Star Wars movie that did about $79 million in the first 24 hours. And so I said, we're going to do the biggest 24 hours in retail entertainment history. And somewhat of a contrived uh, data point, but we did $99 million uh, and rented somewhere on 3rd Street right here. And that evening for uh, our employees, uh, which were all based at 650 Townsend, which was Sega now, of course, is the Zynga. Zynga, building. yeah. Um, and we had a great night um, and, and celebrated a lot of work. And we thought we'd really taken off. So, you know, this idea of it being broader than just gaming, boys in their bedrooms, and, and try to be able to make this more broader and then think, how do we keep our players? How, do, how does this not be a phase you go through right. and then you move on to something else? Because bluntly, that's what it was in the 90s. Yeah, you grew up. You grew up and grew out of it because the content wasn't there for you. It was still young male, yes, young male content, but the maturity of what you were looking for as you, you know, got into your later teens and early 20s wasn't there. In fact, it wasn't cool to be still playing a video game in your early 20s because you seemed juvenile and immature. So uh, the Dreamcast, which you're, you're getting into here, it had a $100 million marketing budget. You started to just touch on this now. Uh, and Sega made a big deal about it. I just uh, was just looking up the old press release the yeah. other day. Uh, you said, quote, oh dear. We are committed to this audience and can't wait to show them the face of the new Sega this year through our ads, promotions, events, and activities that touch them directly. And a big part of that was that you sponsored, of all things, the 1999 MTV Video Music Awards. Yes, we did. That's an interesting choice for a video game company. Is it just purely about the demographics? It was about the demographic, but also what night were the V? If you've done your research, what night was the VMAs? Nine nine ninety nine. Right. So the night of the the VMAs was the night we launched the Dreamcast. We did a ton of activation around that. Um, these were the days when when video game companies were still spending most of their marketing budget on television. Yeah. Because it was the only way really. Digital was still in very much in its infancy. Um, 
struck up a great relationship with friends at MTV because we did it again the following year. We did the sponsorship uh, for the Dreamcast. So we were going to the next phase of online connected entertainment. But it was, it was this perfect storm of a date. It was New York City. We were at the Toys R Us headquarters in Times Square there. So everything focused from a marketing perspective on New York City. We had concurrent uh, events here in San Francisco. So the VMAs became a great platform. And also for me, um, that by then, the, the president COO, it said, we're big time. We're as much a part of broader entertainment as, as, as m- music and, and, and movies and television are. And it allowed us to use, uh, a, in this particular case, a movie platform a music platform, I'm sorry, uh, to say games are big, if not bigger. We also had a 60-second commercial um, called It's Thinking uh, that we had filmed and very high production costs that we debuted. So everything came together on 9999 that night in New York City, and that was this, which you needed with your console launch, massive explosion of publicity and also signaled, we're in this, and we're in this big time. Did you have any trouble uh, selling all of this to the mothership back in Japan? (laughs) To their credit, um, they realized that um, we needed to do something disruptive. I always remember flying to Tokyo. I probably went to Tokyo seven or eight times in the first three months that I was working at Sega, explaining my, my campaign philosophy, what we needed to do. I'd done a lot of research immediately on who I saw was the looming enemy, which was obviously PlayStation yeah. coming in with the, with the PS2. And we needed to get in early. We needed to get ahead of them um, because I knew what they would do, which is they would FUD us. Fear, Fear uncertainty, and, and doubt. doubt. Very much still prominent today. Absolutely. And to their credit, they did it brilliantly. But my goal was to set Sega Dreamcast and our online capabilities separately from what I thought PlayStation would come at us with. We had our icon, we had Sonic. Um, We did a very innovative TV commercial. And this concept uh, of its thinking and the idea that there's real AI in this device and that it would know what your tendencies are. It would understand who you are the more you played and that it would try and beat you. Um, Because in those days, there was no real online, so it was you versus the machine. Sure. Always there. So... Wacky 15-second spots, if you recall them. Um, slightly creepy voice going, it's thing. <laughs> and, and it created publicity. And, so, and that's what you want as a marketer, not only to deliver a message, but also to deliver some kind of other kind of, of, of conversation, which is, boy, this is wacky. I mean, what, what's the, what does they mean it's thinking? And it, it doesn't even show the console. It's not even showing games. <laughs> and that was very disruptive in those days. Before we get to the sort of transition out of, out of Dreamcast and into software, I'm curious, sort of with the benefit of hindsight, because obviously I'm sure in the moment you have yourself and your team convinced that this is going to be a success, this is going to work. Were there any signs, looking back now, that any indications that, that Dreamcast wasn't going to succeed? There was a lot of skepticism in the industry, um, and we were viewed with a little bit of um, doubt because of what had happened with the Saturn. Right. And, and it was also seen as Sega's Hail Mary. If this doesn't work for them, they're done. Yeah. The hardware business is expensive. It's high risk, high reward if you get it right. Sega, whilst having the funds to do the launch right, 
did they have the funds and the resources to continue to sustain in the light that we saw coming at the end of that tunnel, which was the launch of the PlayStation 2. Sure. The emotion engine. Games that will be like Toy, Toy Story, Story yeah. brought to life. Um, PlayStation brilliantly used two games out of Japan, Kessen and The Bouncer, um, as indications of how good the graphics were, albeit cutscenes, but, but people were going, wow, that looks unbelievably good. And they did everything that I would have done in their situation, <laughs> which is to marginalize the Sega Dreamcast as something, yeah, you can have some fun with that, and go play Ready to Rumble, or Soul Calibur is a great game. But when you're ready to step up into the big time, oh. here comes the PlayStation 2. And so we knew we had a battle on our hands. Um, and we took, a, we took a, a, an aggressive stance against it, as, as a challenger brand has to do. You, you go in and you try to puff your chest up bigger than you really should, maybe, and that's certainly that your wallet can sustain, and go at it and start punching. And we punched. And we tried hard to justify the purchase of a Dreamcast. The other issue that you face is that the third parties rightly start looking at you and going, okay, when do we start putting the Dreamcast dev kits down and pick up the PlayStation 2 dev kits and start developing for that? And and during that period, it was already concurrent because the PlayStation 2 dev kits were already in play, as you remember, because it launched the following year. And that was probably when you start, you go to meetings, and let me tell you, you go sit down with, with the Activisions, the Midways, the Capcoms, the Namcos, the Acclaims, yeah. and you walk out of those meetings and you t- look to your team and you go, I, I just don't think they're going to continue to develop for this. And, and meeting after meeting after meeting, you go in there and you're pitching what the Dreamcast plan would be over the next 12 to 18 months to convince them to continue to develop. and and, and you know, what happens in, in instances is you're trying to provide financial support. And even without that, you could see eventually the writing was on the wall that dev resources from the third parties was shifting. Now, if there was any good news, Sega at that time still had arguably the greatest first party set of studios that, that any console manufacturer. We had nine studios there. Um, their roots are in, in arcade machines, amusement machines, so sure. some of the, the AM2, AM3. Yeah. You had the Yu Suzuki's, you had the uh, Nakasans, you had Nakagawa-san, you had Iguchi-san. So you had great talent there. The challenge being um, that the world was starting to shift, and there was a perceptible shift towards different experiences and the globalization of our industry, and online was going to create that. And what was happening was it was a very difficult conversation to have back in Japan. Is understandable? We need to get away from samurai warriors and you know jet set radio future stuff that all looks Japanese and get into what the Japanese call yoge, which is which is foreign games. But you, we needed to globalize the way that we were doing things, and and it was a tough conversation to have. And then you know down the road GTA three comes out, and all of a sudden the world changes, right? That was Where it where that line in the sand said, boy, this is different. This is mature. Wow, I'm, I'm a little uncomfortable playing this. But that set the scene for where we all are today because it went away from fantasy and cutesy and bright colors and different types of music to mature themes that, that our consumers watching our movies and enjoying but never thought it would be a game. Right. Changed everything. So 
that leads you to the decision, of course, to transition the company out of the hardware business and into being a software company. Um, I can't imagine you feel any different about it in hindsight, but as looking back, I mean, is it, it, it was the right move? Well, there was no choice. So, so what had happened, um, what happens when you're the hardware, uh, the first party, is that you've got to get your install base up as quickly as possible. You need to. You always said first to ten million. Wins. I said first ten million. That was later on with Xbox. <laughs> yeah. But but ten million is boy. You get to ten million, you're rocking. Yeah. I mean, and you got that lead, and your touch rate is there of software. The business model is, in some instances, you're losing money yeah. on the hardware, and it's what people will will often call razors and razor blades. You, you've got to install the hardware as fast as you can, get the price point right, make sure you continue to push that through, get your manufacturing right. And then both first party, very profitable games, third parties where you get a royalty, and that attach rate needs to be on there. And we just weren't, as, as well as we were selling the hardware, it wasn't quite enough. And then when you start to see the thunderstorms of third parties pulling away, then you realize your attach rate is going to go down. Bottom line, we came out of holiday in 2000, and in January in 2001, I went to Japan um, and um, we looked at the numbers. I knew what the numbers were. If you recall, Japan was already having a difficult time with the Dreamcast. Europe hadn't done so well either. And the difficult decision uh, was made in, in, I think, the second week of January, if, if memory serves me correctly, that we've got to pull the plug. We can't continue to manufacture at a loss. We can't continue to have a relatively weak attach rate. And we've got to, we've got to turn this company around rapidly and turn ourselves from a, an aggressive first party that is taking on Sony and Nintendo to a malevolent third party <laughs> that needed to go to Sony and Nintendo and ask for dev kits. And so on January the 31st, a few blocks from here, um, uh, the Japanese uh, company uh, back in Haneda, Tokyo said, you need to host a conference call. Uh, it's often, I'm often accused of killing the Dreamcast. And that comes from an interview where, where I made the call, or, 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 you know, at, and that would be the telephone call, uh, <laughs> in which they felt they needed a, a Westerner to explain to yeah. the world what was going on. January 31st, 10 a.m., uh, 2001, uh, I chaired a telephone call. Always remember, there's about 600 people on the call, wow. and said, we, Sega, are getting out of the hardware business. We're going to transition to being a third-party software business, our, th our, our software, our IP is second to none, maybe second to Nintendo, but, but we felt it was there and we felt we could do this. That commenced then a tough 12 to 18 months of then going to see Nintendo, then going to see Sony, and then starting to work our way through our existing Dreamcast inventory hardware. It's a tough job. And then start to make sure that we could take care of our Dreamcast customers who would trusted us and yeah. invested in the Sega Dreamcast, and then move us and transition and pivot the company towards being a third party, uh, as they are today. But I would think that the, the Sonys and Nintendos of the world would be picking up the phone to call you guys immediately, saying, you know, it, recognizing that software development talent in, at Sega and going, well, let's get you guys on our platform right now. You'd think, but ironically, who is the first person that picks up the phone and calls us? Microsoft. Correct. <laughs> and said, look, we have a spiritual bond with the Dreamcast. Yeah. If you go look at a Dreamcast, there's a Microsoft logo on the back there with the Windows CE. That's right. Because that was the operating system. And 
we love what you tried to do with online because we think that's the future. And so Robbie Bach, team, Jay Allard, Camferoni in those days, um, you know, Seamus, Seamus, I mean, all big Sega fans. And, and that, was the, that was the warm cocoon that was offered to us of, of come, let's talk about your content. Let's talk about what we can do on our platform, which has got a very similar dev base as your platform, um, and how we can help you transition to being third party. And by the way, we're going to invest in some of your games and, and do them exclusively because we need that. And the, and the somewhat the irony was this with Microsoft thought this will be their entree into the Japanese market utilizing yeah. Sega IP. So we we went through all of that, and you know I always remember. I mean, my last. Um, a most frustrating uh, meeting was in, in December of 2002 um, and flying to Tokyo and was still thinking about, I'm, I built what I called a manifesto for the future for Sega. Um, and we've done a lot of focus groups in and around here south of market of the Sega brand and what it means and how do we reposition who we are from being an aggressive first party, taking on Sony, taking on Nintendo, and being a uh, platform agnostic third party. And, and what does our brand mean? Have we damaged our brand? Mm -hmm. Remember, we're coming off a less than pleasant time on the Saturn, and all of a sudden, we're only in the market for the best part of two years, and <clears throat> we're walking away from the Dreamcast. So what do people think of us? So we had a week where we did focus groups here in, um, in San Francisco, and actually in New York, so we got um, both coasts view. And you, when you do focus groups, you kind of say, okay, Ryan, if, 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 um, if EA was, 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 was a person, who would they be? <laughs> if Take-Two was a person, who would they be? So we posed those questions, right? right? And that, we did these focus groups, and, and I'll never forget the answers because they were both as funny and yet sobering when you think about it. EA was the arrogant high school quarterback jock always <laughs> got the good. This is exactly what came through. Uh, they walk in the room, they command attention, they're big, they're bold, they're brash, they're loud. Take two is your drunken uncle who shows up every six <laughs> weeks from Vegas with a, a, a woman of ill repute on his arm and then disappears again, never to be seen. <laughs> but boy, he comes in with a big bang and then he disappears again. Um, and, and, and that was a common theme as well, which I'm sure Take-Two loved because I think that was the irreverency of <laughs> sure. Rockstar in particular. Yeah. Um, Sega. Sega is your granddad who used to be cool and who has forgotten why and uh, just sits there now. And he's still in the room, but he's not really the presence that he once was. Oh, oh man. So um, that was, you've got, you got a problem. And so my job at that time was to try and, if I could, if I could um, bring Sega into the globalization, what, what it's yeah. thinking to be, because I could see it here. And I had the advantage of seeing the Grand Theft Autos and, and what was going on, which was the maturing of content and the bringing along of 16-year-old boys to be 17-year-old video game players, to be 18-year-old video game players, to be 19-year-old video game players. So off I go to Tokyo with, with Mike Fisher, who worked with me then. Mike speaks Japanese. Mike's still in the industry, worked with me at Xbox. And we go off, and, and Mike remember this, and we had this manifesto for the future. And um, I presented this to a number of the developers, the real power with the heads of development. 
there was the corporate entity, but the heads of development were the power, and, and sure. right, uh, rightly so during that period of time. And I presented this. And I just got into it with um, one developer, Yuji Naka, who just accused me of falsifying the video and there's no way. And so um, it got heated because wow. this for me, this for me was going to be a meeting either we could get this and move this and it, or I'm done. But because you, you, need, you need them on board. Well, you need them on board because they're the power. Yeah. And, and there was nine studios that they made what games they felt like making. And, and the good news for a long time is they were all very successful. The bad news, the world was shifting underneath their feet and were still creating content primarily for the Japanese audience. And remember the roots also of, of the Dreamcast was the Naomi motherboard, which was, so a lot of these games had to come back into between the arcades. So a game like Crazy Taxi and what sure. have you. Um, so that they could amortize the development cost across multiple, in those days, platforms, locations. Um, yeah, we got into it, and, and, and it, was the, it was the final straw for me. And uh, I may have stood up and said to the translator, you need to tell him to go pound sand or words to that effect. He said, <laughs> there's no Japanese word for that. I said, I know there is. Um, and that was it, and ironically, and I, I, I just was frustrated. I loved Sega. Yeah. I loved the games, the IP, but the frustration level had got too much for me. And by sheer... Um, coincidence, I, I arrived back at SFO and um, get a phone call from, from Robbie Bach. I'm saying, how are you doing? And just really checking in because he knew yeah. I'd gone over to Japan. The chief Xbox big, officer. Correct. And, and you know, we had got together um, a lot in business and, and I had actually been on the stage for him prior to that um, at, at, at E3 and when they were trying to launch the, the Xbox, the original one. Um, and I said, you know, I'm, I'm just kind of fed up at this point. I think it's it, I can see the writing on the wall. It's going to be incredibly difficult uh, to drag Sega into this next phase of where we're seeing gaming going. He said, well, you know what? If you ever want to think about you know, maybe moving up north, um, you know, we've got hugely ambitious plans, and we would you know, consider you know, somebody like yourself helping us think through particularly a lot of the marketing that was going on. So a week later, I got a call from Steve Ballmer. Um, you got to take that call. Yeah, you pick up the phone, Steve. <laughs> and he's like, I'd love to have lunch with you. And so this is January of 2003. Um, you know, uh, appreciate all of the support you've given us, but we've got to really now get after uh, this next phase because they could already see what became. Yeah, they were already be on, What on, became on the Xbox 360 yeah. was already on the horizon. Um, flew up to, to Seattle, sat with Steve, uh, had a great one and a half hour conversation of what I felt the future needed to be. And uh, they offered me a job. And my first job there was actually running Europe and Japan, ironically, um, and, and full retail, but primarily focused on Xbox. And, um, you know, we were getting ready for what became a tremendous period of three years till we got to the launch of the, of the Xbox 360. Let me jump back for yeah. two seconds. Just one more. I've, I've got to ask you while you're here. Do, do you think with the Dreamcast in hindsight... Is there anything that could have been done to make that system a success? Well, you'd like to think EA maybe publishing some games where it would have helped. <laughs> um, I, I don't know. I think I think maybe the writing was already on the wall um, that Sony was just too powerful. Um, that the Japanese development and publisher community was still a very strong and powerful part of the global ecosystem, and Sony had done brilliantly both 
in Japan as well as in North America and Europe in getting all of the right publishers set up and ready to go. It felt to me that many of the publishers had probably accepted um, financial incentives to develop for the Dreamcast for one game. Right. And then it was kind of, all right, we're going to wait and see. Uh, and you can't blame them. Um, we're going to wait and see because what they'd love is the Dreamcast being powerful, you know, Nintendo coming in, um, and, and, and with N64 being powerful, and then later the GameCube, uh, because publishers love that. They love uh, big first parties spending lots of money driving the install base. But it wasn't to be. And I think what had happened was that they had looked at what had happened in Japan and then Europe, and whilst there was a glimmer of hope here in North America, I think probably they had decided we're going to move our development resources to PlayStation 2. Do you think the, so the seeds of Dreamcast failure were sown with the Saturn? It was certainly, when I first arrived at Sega, that was my, our first challenge, is how do, we, how do we somewhat apologize for the Saturn? And then really position a fresh start with uh, the Dreamcast. And one of the things I insisted is it was called the Dreamcast around the world. I said, no, this is a Sega Dreamcast. And uh, the, the minimal research I had time to do, there was still tremendous goodwill, which there still sure. is today. Of course. For the Sega brand. And, you know, so I insisted on putting Sega Dreamcast um, uh, on the box and, and calling it the Sega Dreamcast. Um, it, 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 but uh, we'd burned, uh, we'd burned too many bridges, I think, and it was difficult. Uh, and then when we, when the Dreamcast wasn't successful, real challenge. So you're at Microsoft. Then. Yeah. We're fast, fast forwarding again. Uh, when, when, you know, Balmer brings you in, you have the hour and a half chat, and you get hired. Does does Balmer or anybody else at the top give you any just mandates or overarching goals like, Peter, we need this, this, and this from you? You bet. Microsoft is incredibly driven by what we call KPIs, key performance indicators, objectives, goals. Um, Steve, one of my favorite people in the world, and Bill, um, loved the idea that what we were building in the Xbox and the brand that was Xbox was so different than what Microsoft was at that time. Oh, yeah. When I arrived, and this will be ironic to a, to, to a lot of viewers, when I arrived, Microsoft was being proposed to be split apart because it was so powerful. And the we antitrust were, stuff. The antitrust, we were operating under consent decree because they wanted to split Windows and Explorer apart. And whilst I was at Xbox, we operated under consent decree. And that basically means we, we really couldn't buy anybody because we were deemed a monopoly. Right. Or we accused of being a monopoly. And we couldn't buy anybody. We, our, our emails were read. We were, t every 90 days, Brad Smith, the general counsel, would bring us in. Here's what you can say in email. I don't want to talk any, see anybody talk about dominating the market <laughs> uh, and controlling. And so we learned how to operate uh, under government jurisdiction. At the same time, what Xbox had was this little magic dust of difference. Um, what we did, which, which I actually enjoyed, although it wasn't the most pleasant place to work, we actually uh, really embraced our, we want to be separate to the Borg and had our yeah, You're at the end of the road. We were right at the end of the road, Union Hill Road, and it was just our enclave, and it was, it was what we enjoyed doing. Do we go back in two every other day or something to go to meetings? You bet. But we built the culture, the, yes, we're part of Microsoft, but we're Xbox. As part, again, this is where the challenger brand element comes into it because we need to be feisty. Uh, we, didn't, we didn't need to be bogged down by 
what I used to call the corporate tax, which are meanings about this and meanings about that. We just wanted to build out what we felt would be the competitive advantage of being first to market in the fall of 2006 with the next iteration of the Xbox. And, and that's what we did for three years. Right. Well, 06 or 05. 05, sorry, oh. yeah, and, yeah. And then knowing that PlayStation, we knew pretty early, was going to be 06. 06. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, so looking back, I mean, what, what do you think now, what was the highlight of your time at Xbox? I mean, you, oh. you weathered a lot of storms, the Red Ring of Death we talked about on Unlock 201 yeah. last year. What do you, looking back, what was the highlight of your time there? Because you accomplished a lot, and the, the, the Xbox brand grew from that garage yeah. band, effectively, into, yeah. a, into an arena stadium rock act. Yeah. I think it, it's difficult to pinpoint one incident or, 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 or part of who we were, but, but the, the personalities, the Jay Allards, the Robbie Bucks, um, sitting down with Bill like this, with Bill Gates, and Robbie. Robbie and I would have two-on-ones with, with Bill. And, and to this day, those are my favorite times there. Bill would be more relaxed in, 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 in just in his office, humble, brilliant man. I yeah. always described him as an alien because I don't think he was <laughs> from this planet. Um, but, but what the Xbox kindled in Bill was this little bit of impish playfulness that he is as a human being. You, you, Bill would do so many spoofs. Still to this day, he'll do all the spoofs because... At heart, he's just got this slightly irreverently impish sense of humor. Very different than Steve. But Bill would be, why don't we do this? And why don't we do that? And, and, and how do we think through this? And, and, and what do we think the other guys are doing? And, so, and, and he trusted me, to his credit, um, to build, as we were doing then, a marketing plan. Again, that was a little different. I mean, I talked about Dreamcast being my Jump in was even more different, and including filming one commercial that actually never made the air. Um, yeah, you talked about that last year. Yeah, and, and, and that I treasured with Bill as he trusted me and the team to do something so different than what Microsoft typically was doing in that world, because they were battling Apple towards the end of my tenure there, and it was getting very ugly. <laughs> um, so, you know, th those, those were the times. Steve I loved. I always remember being in Steve's conference room, and, and we were building Xbox Live, and Steve said, and, and people think Steve's a big buffoon. He isn't. He's, he's, he's a very thoughtful, sensitive, big personality and booming voice, and, and sometimes can't control his body, but Steve, brilliant, and I love Steve, and a humble man. Um, pounding the desk, not be out of anger, but just out of enthusiasm. Oh! We need to get this Xbox Live thing going on. I want 5 million people, and, and they should be paying us money because we're going to invest in this, and, and they should pay us 5 bucks a month because we're going to throw hundreds of millions of dollars. And he was right. And he was right, and, and we did. Um, and, and, and being able to interact day in, day out with, with Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer, depending on the situation, big thrill. Uh, and I love being on stage at E3 with Bill. I remember being at CES with Bill and Steve on stage, we, we were working with EA, ironically, on Fight Night, and they were playing against, because they will, they'll play against each other, and uh, I got upset with Steve because he threw his controller across the stage because he <laughs> lost to Bill, and I'm going, you, do, you don't do that. <laughs> anyway, and, and so those were wonderful times, and loved the people and the team we had there. It was feisty. It was underdog. It was, it was going to take on the big dog, get to market first. There you are with the underdog again. Get, get the, exactly. Get the right price point. Start to move the industry forward. Have the courage only to do 
a Ethernet adapter. Sounds ridiculous now, but back still, then, yeah. back then, 80% of the people were still connecting via their telephones. Getting with the third parties on board, um, making sure then we could sustain it, unlike the Dreamcast. Um, had fun messing with uh, the internet with what the thing looked like, what it was called. It was Xenon, <laughs> right? And in those days, there was all kinds of conspiracy theories of what it looked like. So I asked the team, why don't we just go create like 20 different I don't know if I ever told this story. 20 different looks and designs, not hard for us to do. We're freaking Microsoft. Yeah. And let's just throw them out there. And, uh, you know, it's, it's, and that's what we did. And, and people got so confused that we managed, I think, within 12 hours of actually the unveil, which was young lady with the backpack in Hollywood, whole yeah. different story, um, to, you know, to confuse everybody. And I always related to, does everybody know where, what chaff is? And they looked at me. I said, well, chaff is what fighter planes will throw out to, you know, to, <laughs> to distract missiles. I said, we're <laughs> going to throw chaff out there. And we did. And we, we had an awful lot of fun uh, confusing the forums and, and, and the, in those days, the chat rooms um, as to what the Xbox 360 was going to look like. So, yeah, we talked all kinds of Xbox on Unlock 201, which I yeah. encourage everybody to watch. But uh, one of the things, just sort of in general, a little Microsoft question, because you sort of, I would say you really became... Uh, a, a known figure in gamers' eyes at Microsoft, uh, and you're, you've just—you've always been really good on stage. Um, do you think? Oh, and you still so being from Liverpool. I mean, but yeah, why do you think you come off so well with gamers when you admit that you know you came into this business as not even a, not even a guy who played games? No, but but very quickly, I just loved the industry. I loved the gamers. Uh, I went to E3 and I thought this is cool. Um, and Sega was a great place for me to start to learn that and learn that very quickly. And then the passion for what I was seeing with gaming reminded me of the passion for sneakers. And that sounds ridiculous for people that don't. But hey, sneakerheads. Sneakerheads, big deal. Yeah. And I quickly understood it. Um, loved my brands. Loved my team. Um, and and became a little bit of a, more than a brand ambassador, but, but an emissary and, and somebody that would fight for the brand, fight for gamers. I became part of, uh, in those days, the IDSA, uh, we're now the ESA, right. um, thrill uh, testifying uh, in Congress uh, for the industry against um, you know, ill-advised, very poorly uh, educated uh, on our industry congressmen and senators who wanted just, uh, we were, oh my God, we were just everything. We were uh, oh, you know, killing people, Lieberman, yeah. McCain. It was the Lieberman, McCain hearings, and, and I testified. Um, and then I, I have the, uh, you know, slightly irreverent personality anyway, and did a lot of fun things at Xbox, including uh, one day, I mean, literally a few weeks out and said, why don't I get a tattoo? Because nobody believes we're going to ship this game anymore. <laughs> and... What do I have to do? Tattoo this on my body? And somebody said, well, why don't you? And we did the Halo 2 tattoo, and then we decided to just keep tattooing. And we did uh, Grand Theft Auto, I think, a couple of years later. That one was fake, though, right? What do you mean it's fake? <sighs> so you, you will not let this urban legend, you will not set it, set it to bed once and for all. We, I even asked you last year, too. Uh, what did I say? Well, you said it, the Halo one was real. You, you, you have stuck to your guns on that. No pun intended. <laughs> it was a great way. One of these days, I'm gonna. Yeah, you're, one of these I'm days you'll catch, catch me in a t-shirt jogging. Yeah, in, maybe in on the peninsula somewhere. 
I can absolutely put my hand on my heart and tell you I've got a tattoo right there. I believe right you. Right there. So As anyway. I sit here, I believe you. Because, I you're, have, you're uh, because you engender trust. You're a guy. You're I a have guy. my right arm, a tattoo right there. And it's there. And, and, and it's there. Do you anyway. laugh at it? Do you look at it in the mirror now and just, and just, just no. giggle at it? No. No. It's, it's just a tattoo or whatever. <laughs> Nobody sees it other than me and, and, and you know, a few of us maybe. But, um, but, but, but back to your question, I just, that was what you needed to do in our industry to, to get attention, to, to bring people together. But you're, you're, you care, I think. Is that really what it comes totally down to? You can't, you can't just be a suit who is running, or, there, or at least there is a big difference in the consumer's eyes between someone who is passionate enough to ink their bodies versus a guy who, uh, or a person who just puts on the, the, their suit and goes to work every day and tries to put numbers in spreadsheets and make bigger numbers. I care because the, there's a lot of people that rely upon the industry being successful for their livelihoods. There's so much passion, positive and negative, in yeah. the gaming community. Over the more recent years, social media has given us a huge megaphone. We'll talk more about the, the, oh, yeah. the good and bad of that yeah. in a minute. And look, I love E3 because what? Because I can stop and talk to people and people want to have a photograph with me. And, 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 and I feel honored that, that, that somehow I made them laugh or, 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 or did something, got a game for them, or, or did something in the industry that they felt was positive. And... Look, if you can't, if you can't be passionate in this industry, yeah, I don't think you last very long. Yeah, it w and, and actually crunching numbers and getting into spreadsheets, whilst I, I've learned how to do that, wasn't my favorite thing to do. I'm, I'm a Liverpoolian PE teacher that arrived in America because I got the sun shining and, and everybody's happy and smiling and there's an opportunity for me. Um, what I love about gaming is absolutely how important it is for so many hundreds of millions of people's lives. For a lot of people, it's, right. you're one of... <laughs> I'm, I, there's a roof over my head at home because absolutely. of video games. But also for the people who just play, it, yeah. it, it's a time to relax. It takes you away from the reality, which is, for a lot of people, is tough. Um, it's so fond of memory, particularly if you've been playing for a couple of decades. Oh, I remember that game. And I love talking to people, in particular about the Dreamcast days, but also even the early Xbox games. And, you know, launching the... Um, Launching the Xbox 360 with Gears of War and Cameo and Perfect Dark Zero and Project Gotham Racing and all fond memories uh, of those people that were involved. Um, Project Gotham Racing, Bizarre Creations, Liverpool. Studio was literally 600 yards from where I grew up, where my dad had a pub. And, and so all of these things come together and, and create just an incredible industry with, with people who smile as a result of our industry. I, I, and that's the best way I can describe yeah. it. So then uh, you, you leave Microsoft, you head to EA, uh -huh. uh, presumably uh, to move back closer to your family. Yeah, I got a, a, once again a recruiter, ironically the same guy that <laughs> got there, sends me an email and the subject matter is time to come home. Okay, you <laughs> click on that and you go, why would that be? And, and, and inside the email was, hey, you need to know John Riccatello's back at, um, at EA. Um, he's rebuilding the company for the future. Uh, he's creating what was known then as labels. And he would like to talk to you about a job being the president of EA Sports. And I can tell you, Ryan, that... The, You're I was a FIFA so, guy, so that's... Uh, so happy with, with my job at Xbox, there's only one job that would have caught my attention, and that is running EA Sports 
um, soup to nuts, development, marketing, everything as a standalone yeah. business. And, and after a lot of soul searching, and you know, this was a time when the infamous E3 at Santa Monica was going on, and I'd already said yes to uh, EA whilst pausing a guitar on, in rock band. Uh, I was front, there. In front of <laughs> the world. Uh, yeah, at least we knew it was real. It was totally real, and there's a whole story Everything behind that. Is real. that uh, there's a whole story behind that as well, that one of the things that we didn't factor is the lag and, and the yeah, guys... I think on, you told the story last oh, year. Oh, yeah. yeah. And I'm going, wait a second, I'm in trouble. <laughs> I am in, in trouble here. Helen, Alex, you've got to help me out here. And, and yeah, it, was, I, it never fazed me. It made some people, half a million people have watched it on YouTube and, and have mocked me. It doesn't bother me so at all. EA Sports, yeah. I, I want to ask you, because uh, you're, of course, not even, you've moved on now, the chief competition officer, which yep. I promise we're getting to here Eventually. in a second. But uh, NCAA football was a series that was so well regarded. Absolutely. A lot of people thought it was actually a better game than Madden, with no disrespect to Madden. Uh, that was... That was all because of the lawsuit, right? Yeah, I mean, we... Look, and, and, and settlements are still going out, so it's tough to really get into a sure. lot of detail. But, but yeah, I think that what happened is that NCAA football became the lightning rod for bigger issues regarding college athletes getting paid play, yeah. for their performance in, in, in not only football, but, but all college sports. Yeah. And their likeness. And uh, it was a sad day when we realized we are in the sights of a number of lawsuits, a number of athletes, uh, which were all combined eventually into one singular suit, had said, that's me. And Yeah, the O'Bannon suit that was. O'Bannon, Keller, there was a yeah, number. So, and it was a sad day. I, 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 but but when, you're, when your lawyer's fees are more than the revenue that you can expect to get in, and you, know, you just, in the end, had to say, we can move this dev team to do something else that we can have a very clear future that we know. Think of dev cycles. They're, 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 they're not just like we start and then we finish in the same year. They're two, three years out. Sure. It was an unclear future for us. And so we, we unfortunately, and it was a really sad day, I had to say, we just can't do this anymore. Um, and, you know, and, and, and one day I know we'll be back. Uh, but, yeah, uh, and that was a sad day. And, you know, we moved teams. And, Nobody lost their job over it, but because we had great talent there in, in the Orlando studio. Yeah, Tiburon Madden, studio. and then of course plenty uh, of other stuff. Tiger Woods was, Tiger was still there. going on there. You know, you, so you can move people around. And uh, but but it was a sad day. It, 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 you're right. It was a, a really really good game. And it, what I loved about it, it captured Saturday afternoons all over America. Because uh, not only did we have a great on the field experience. We took a lot of time to go to just about every one of the 132 FBS schools and capture the mascots and, and the environment around those stadiums and, and really brought that to life and, and unfortunately had to step away. So uh, speaking of sad days, yeah. it, you, you've been around at EA for the uh, voting of worst company in America, which to me, so it's an internet vote, which, okay. Uh, but when there are companies you know, like BP oil dumping <laughs> billions of gallons into into, into the uh, the Gulf of Mexico. It, EA being voted the worst company in America is pretty ridiculous, right? I mean, how, how do you and the executive team react to that internally? Uh, with some dismay. Uh, yes, it was ridiculous, and this is also the time of subprime mortgage crisis, yeah. and banks are dumping hundreds of thousands of people out in the street. But fundamentally, from what we could figure out. The ending in Mass Effect 3 in particular was just so abhorrent, um, and I'm sure it was more than that. Um, look, 
this was this was one of those moments that you just look at you, you, you try and be defensive and you say this is stupid and this is ridiculous and then you go maybe there's a kernel of truth here yeah. or maybe this is a moment we can step back look in the mirror look at who we are look at how we're perceived and then figure out what we need to do to, to actually do something about it not Which is exactly how you approach the Red Ring of Death scenario. Correct. Oh, well, that's a whole we, separate again, story. Again, we did that story, yeah. too. But, but this was about, hmm, okay, perception's reality. If the perception is that, that we're not a company that puts players first, then how do we change that? So, so I formed a committee in my job as chief operating officer and also as somebody that really cared for the way we perceived. Because here's what you need to remember here. You're a marketing guy. Pers- yeah. That's, that's your, that's your life. But I will never forget the first time we were the worst company in America. Um, I was home, um, Channel 5 News, KPIX, CBS here, leads off, leads off with that logo right there and says, local Bay Area company named worst company in America. That was the lead story wow. that night on the 10 o'clock news. I, I came into campus the next day and said, we've got we to do something. Let's not just like organically put this behind us. Let's take a real look at who we are. Let's take a real look at what we need to do to go forward. This was a time when John Riccatello had left and Larry Probst, I mean, heart and soul of the company for two decades, had come back in on an interim basis, and Larry was incredibly supportive. And I always remember Larry saying, Let's not let this happen again, and in, in, the, in the way that only Larry could say. <laughs> and, and I formed a committee. It had a really clunky name at first, Reputation Rehabilitation, which was basically saying, guys, we've got to do something about this. We really have to, let's dig down. And so our, our communications team started to, uh, the laborious task of trying to figure out deep into social media, into the internet, into the Reddit boards and everything, NeoGAF and, 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 you know, uh, all the places where you just go and you listen to things and go, but let's get, let's take hundreds of thousands of abatums and let's get themes and let's, you know, are we guilty? Are we not guilty? And I often, you know, uh, and it, uh, today it sounds defensive, but, but we were as a company trying to move the industry forward to, to where it is today and, and sometimes the pioneers get the arrows. Um, and, but at the same time, there was stuff that we, we knew we could do, deliberately knew we could do, not organically, deliberately knew we could do. And, and the, the things we started to think about was, how do we put our players first? We kept saying, how do we put our players first in the, every decision? Look, when you're running a, a company of our size, you make 50 decisions a day sure. in meetings. We're, we're a close to $5 billion operation. Nearly 9,000 people and their families rely upon us for their livelihood. Hundreds of millions of gamers love what we do. Some don't. And, but there's a lot of responsibility. You make those decisions. So we embarked upon this journey and, and brought in different companies and marketing companies that, that had been through this and, and learned a lot about ourselves. And, and we were guilty of some stuff. But, but then we made a deliberate attempt to think, okay, how do we go fine? How do we go forward here? And the mantra that we came up with was this concept of player first. And I can tell you as I sit here, Ryan, to this day, in fact, this morning, in meetings, question is always asked. If we're making decision, what do we need to do here? When do we ship that? Um, you know, what type of experience does this need to be? All the way deep into the code sometimes. Somebody will say, but is that player first? And that's the moment we all stop, think, and no, because it's not about revenue. It's not about what benefits EA. The, th- the concept that eventually came to us, if you do things that are player first, 
ultimately good things will come. Will happen. Absolutely. Yeah. And so we added that to where we're looking at, so that player first, then the digital transformation. We had seen digital coming for a long time. John Riccatello, to his credit, first meeting I ever went to, it's called a burning platform meeting. It's not a meeting, it's not the title of a meeting you want to go to at your first <laughs> meeting. But basically, he had said, we need to reposition what we're doing and how we're spending money to, to, to be ready for a world where it's not all about putting disks in a disk tray. And, and this is 2007. And to this day, the success that we have, um, you know, a lot of it you can point to John for having the foresight. And boy, when Andrew came in in, in September 2013, picked up that baton and ran with it and, and continued to drive against this edict. And the third thing we had as a meeting was one team. We need as a company, when you're so big and diverse and you're all around the world, you're in Vancouver, you're in Orlando, you're in Stockholm. You've been you're in Microsoft, Microsoft, another yeah. huge company. Yeah, I, I, believe me. And one Microsoft, interestingly, in more recent years was, was, was <laughs> Steve Ballmer's manager. Yeah, yeah and, and Nadella doing it now. But one team. And, and that is a very important, it's more internal, but that's a very important tentpole for how you act with each other. Because you can particularly... In, in, in a business like ours where there's hits and misses and you can the finger pointing can start because the misses are not like we missed by a few million dollars misses are hundreds of millions of dollars at times finger pointing can come quickly I can tell you in the last three years and Andrew can can certainly take the credit for this that we operate as one team so when we go back to where we were to where we are today those are the three temples that we've adopted but the one that always comes up in meetings is players first uh, and I'm proud that, 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 that the committee that, that got together started thinking, it's a 12-step program. <laughs> we were certainly not in denial anymore. And, you know, here's the good news. We're no longer, this year anyway, worst company in America. Well, I think a good example of that, I mean, look at, uh, at the time it was NBA Elite. That game, oh, yeah. was, that game was done. I, at my previous employer, I, I had that game review. The review was done. It was mm -hmm. over. And you guys yanked it from the shelves. Yeah. Like two weeks before it was due for no. release? Weekend before launch. Weekend before launch. Discs and were you pressed. Did that, that is a, that, was that a great example of a player-first decision? Absolutely. We had, um, and it's ironic, uh, we were an off-site Orioles member in Sausalito, Cavallo Point over there. And uh, um, as we started to understand the reception the game was getting, and there's a famous... YouTube video of, of Andrew Bynum. Jesus Bynum. Uh, and what, the what I know. What you see there is the way model uh, characters right. are modeled. And, and, and it was a relatively... It's a bug. It's a bug that would have been fixed. Yeah. But boy, this was... It got away from us. And, and we sat down. Andrew was, was, was... Part of that was running EA Sports at the time. We had looked at some of Wilson, the... Wilson, not Bynum. That's correct. <laughs> Wilson. Um... We sat down and we made a very difficult decision and a very expensive decision um, that this game is not worthy of the NBA Live or NBA Elite as yep. we then decided and we're not going to ship it. Now, literally, warehouse is ready to go. That's how, how many millions of dollars? I mean, you've got a discs, lot. you've got... A lot. Oh, development's done, that's cost is no, the gone. Game, the Marketing. Game, yeah, we're shipping the following yeah. Tuesday. Um, unprecedented, I, I, I got to believe in the industry, but it was... We ultimately, once we got the game into the wild, it was clear to us that, that it was not of this caliber that we had believed it was. Um, and you can argue we're still trying to claw our way back from that. You know, we, we made that decision because it was a player's first decision. We delayed games, Battlefield Hardline. Sure, out of the you ball. Know, 
you know, it's like, oh my goodness, uh, I'm the chief operating officer. I'm supposed to have, you know, and hundreds of millions of dollars in this quarter of the case this. I don't have it. But but better we don't have it and get it right, uh, that, and I'll make up the revenue somewhere else. Dragon Age Inquisition team comes and says, oh boy, we could do it. Another three, four weeks of polish. Go for it. We'll make it work. Um, so we make those decisions now. Uh, and not to say those decisions wouldn't have been previously made, but, but boy, we make that decision and we look at each other, is this player first? Yes, then do it. No, how can we do it differently to make it so? That's so, what we do. So now, uh, took a while to get here, we're here. Esports. Yeah. Uh, you are the chief competition officer uh-huh. at EA, that, which to me just sort of seems like a natural extension of EA Sports to an extent. Do you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, how did this come about? Uh, coming off a great fiscal year, um, we started to really, I, 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 well, first of all, EA's been in esports for over a decade with the FIFA Interactive World Cup, with various iterations of the Madden Bowl, Madden right. Challenge, but we've never scaled. Um, with interest over the last couple of years, we all started to watch what was going on in, in, in esports. Um, League of Legends, Dota 2, CSGO, and everybody going, it's Counter-Strike, it's been around for a long time. <laughs> you know, um, why is that so popular? And really dug into it. And then I think in, in 2015, we really started to see the industry starting to explode and scale. But more importantly, we saw it being something so attractive to, to, to our players that they were spending more time on competitive games. And, and I want to make the distinction between what I, we would rather call competitive gaming than what is esports, which I think confuses people because everybody thinks sports games, FIFA Madden, brilliant for Well, actually, they're not. <laughs> so um, we got work to do. So what we look at, so Andrew said, boy, your, your combination of, of from whence you came with, with Patrick and Reebok and understanding competition and, and sports, because ultimately leagues and, and, and getting people together uh, is going to be part of this. And then, of course, your background and what you've done here at EA and everything we've just gone through for the last 30-odd minutes or so, you're the perfect choice to be this next phase of what we need to do. Let's form a division. I want I, Andrew, want you, Peter, to, to head this up. Um, and I took a weekend and I thought about it. And Did I love being the COO of EA? Yes, I did. Did I see this as yet another challenge in this journey that we've been going, talking yeah. through here? Of again, another underdog role for you. It's an underdog role. Boy, are we an underdog right now in this? But the company is very committed to a long-term strategy. We're a patient company. Uh, we, don't need, we don't need the revenue to, to justify the investment. We're making the investment. And three years from now, I know we're going to be a very successful part of what is currently esports, which we'd rather call competitive gaming. Why do we rather call competitive gaming? Because I think esports focuses purely on that top of the pyramid, professional players, right. and that's great, and we're there. But there's so much more that we can do as an industry for engaging everybody, regardless of your skill sets, regardless of whether you can avo- you know, afford to even drive to a tournament. Let's get the online tournaments to be a very vibrant part of this, and let's, let's aspire for you to be a, an esports professional athlete. But boy, we see the action here, and that's where we're committing ourselves. So what's a, what is a typical day like? For, I always like to ask people who have fascinating jobs, but what's a typical, like I think most people watching this have no idea, what does Peter Moore do all day? So you're the chief competition officer at EA. What'd you do today? Today? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I was in the office at seven. I'd suffer my <laughs> questions for an hour. Uh, you, you get into meetings with, with uh, one of the things we're going through right now is we have great partners. We're, we're, 
we're, our first two games are FIFA and Madden. We're, we're getting into the cadence of the regular sports. We're scaling massively what we're doing. As you may recall, we had EA Play. I was on the stage in London and announced the Madden Championship, mm -hmm. a million-dollar prize pool there. Those tournaments are getting ready to go, the Challenger events, the Premier events, and then the EA Majors as you work your way up through the pyramid. I'll be in Germany at the end of next week at Gamescom. Mm -hmm. I'll be announcing what our plans are for FIFA, and stay tuned on that. Um, working with both the NFL and FIFA is fascinating because they both get the excitement, uh, very different entities, but both get the excitement of what this is all about. We're both educating them while we're building games at the same time on what the opportunities are. So working with a licensor adds a certain amount of complexity to it. Right. I'm building a team, interviewing, over the last week I've been interviewing candidates to be commissioners of our various franchises. That's what we call them. That's cool. their official title. Oh, yeah. That's what your business card says. Every, uh, every sports fan's always wanted to be the commissioner the of something, whether it's their fantasy league or something else. Yeah, and, and, and also building, you know, we're looking at getting our message out. So this week I was with Dean Takahashi, obviously, in Gamesbeat and, and did a, a kind of end-of-day uh, keynote with Jeff Keighley and yeah. talked about what's going on. Because not only do we see it as important for EA, we also see this as important for the industry. And it goes back to my passion for the industry. Um, this allows me now in my 60s to reinvent myself yet again, learn new skill sets, learn about new environments. It allows EA to be able to build towards what we do very well, which is patient investment to get this right. Not in denial at all about the work that's needed at the dev level to get our games right, a platform level to get matchmaking and anti-cheating and all the things sure. that surround competitive gaming right now. But boy, are we committed to do, you bet. Uh, and I wouldn't have obviously taken the job if there was no <laughs> commitment to do that. Um, what I'm good at is building teams, building a vision, leading those teams. Um, and that's the phase we're in right now. So I'm going to be incredibly excited about uh, our, our Madden series coming up. Um, we will have a lot to talk about at Gamescom, about FIFA. That'll have already happened by the time this, this airs. This will have happened. <laughs> uh, and then we've got Battlefield 1 on the horizon. Uh, and again, when I think of the Battlefield franchise um, and everything I know the dev team is excited about putting in over a period of time there out of Stockholm. Um, and then you can squint and you go, boy, you could, you could do something with Plants vs. Zombies Garden Warfare 2. You could yeah. do something with Titanfall 2. Huge opportunity. Star Wars, huge opportunities for us at EA to make a real impact uh, in competitive gaming. But we're only going to do it in, in, in a strategic, measured way with the right investment, and we're not blind to the fact we've got a lot of work to do. So you're talking about building stuff. You're talking about taking the time to get it right. You're talking about the digital investment. You're talking about yep. competition. A lot of something that I've wondered, I think a lot of gamers have wondered, are, are will Madden and FIFA and NHL and maybe NBA, are those eventually going to just become games as services where I'm maybe just paying a, a monthly subscription for them rather than a, buying a disc? For $60 every 12 that, months? That question has been posed for, for decades. Um, and, you know, the amount of content that we deliver every year, um, we have teased on FIFA, and we're going to show a lot more, story mode, yeah. uh, the journey. And you've seen that, and, and we showed that, obviously, at EA Play. Uh, I can tell you that, again, this will have aired post-Gamescom. We're going to show a lot more of that. Um, these, these are different modes that, quite frankly, don't lend themselves well to be services. But mm -hmm. you still have, and in particular, around the world outside of North America, you know, intermittent, dodgy internet, and in which you're, 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 if it's a service, boy, I can't get it. And there's still a great percentage of people who just want, I want it either on a disc, 
of course, let's not forget that there's a use gain business that, sure. that allows more and more people to be a part of our industry because they feel there's a residual value yeah. that they, they can An get from the disc. And, you know, I'll, I'll buy 60. In my mind, it's only 40 because I'm going to get 20 back. Get that. We're moving into a world with full game downloads being a more important part of it. But, but our games are live services. I mean, both Madden and FIFA have this magnificent mode called Ultimate Team. And that keeps everything fresh every single day. In, in particular, when the NFL season's going on, our teams oh, there yeah. are reflecting what's going on. And the soccer season never ends. So, <laughs> so there's something going on every day somewhere. And our team in Vancouver reflects that within Ultimate Team. So, so I would argue that our games already are live services. And, and that's what we do well. So just a couple more for you before I let you go. Uh, you've, you've taken a hard line against remasters, despite uh, holding the keys to one that would no doubt sell very, very well, which is the Mass Effect uh -huh. trilogy, as yeah. we wait for Mass Effect Andromeda. Uh, Aren't you turning down real easy money for, for well, EA there? You know, for and I'm a guy, I don't like remasters, <laughs> but I, I'm curious, I, I have to play devil's advocate here. Yeah, uh, we are a company that is focused on delivering for the future. And, and again, I, I was asked a question once. I just said, it's just not what we do. Yeah. And we've got incredibly talented dev studios around the world who are focused on delivering new IP, new experiences, more and more live services. Could we make an easy book on remastering Mass Effect? Yes. As a thousand people ask me that, yes, they have. <laughs> do we have... No. I mean, just we, we just feel like we want to go forward. There's a little thing called Mass Effect Andromeda that we're totally focused on at Bioware, yeah. and it's going to be magnificent. Um, anything that distracts from that, do we, have, do we have teams lying around that are doing nothing right now that can go and... No, we don't. <laughs> uh, we want to focus on the future and delivering new IP and new experiences, and there's easy money to be made all over this industry. But, but the real focus should be, again, on being player first, and, and, and focused on delivering against new IP and new experiences, and that's what we're, our real focus is. But I guess to, again, play the devil's advocate one more time, but if players want that remaster... You know, <laughs> here's the other thing, and without getting into the, the grind of the business, sure. is, is the demand, yes, there's thousands of people. Do we, do, would it be, do we need millions? I, I, I don't know, but, but our blinkers are on, and, and, and we're, we're focused on delivering against the future. Look, there is a lot of people that want Skate 4. There's a lot of people <laughs> that want Fight Night to come back. Sure. A, I mean, we're a 34-year-old company that has thousands of pieces of IP around the world. Road Rash! I mean, the, I, and, and if you allow yourself to, to, to take the easy road, to go do something here, and again, not to diss remastering sure. great franchises, yeah. but there are so many opportunities for us to... Uh, and there's an opportunity cost with this to go have people do something else other than what their objectives are to go forward here. There's, and a company like ourselves, you've been on our campus. You, the, you go down the third floor, and there's probably 200 feet of PC cases that document, uh, for most people, a, f a lost history oh, of it's EA. awesome. If you've seen it, it's from yeah. 1982. Yeah, from 1982 onwards. And it's walls and walls and walls, and it feels like miles of great games. And, you, and, and I find myself every now and again just wandering down there to remind me of all the great games. And, and we don't even talk about that. So there's a lot we could do. There's a ton we could do, but we're really focused on the future. Well, you kind of took my next question. This is wind, but I, I was, as, a, as you are such a soccer fan, I am such a baseball fan, I was going to ask you while I've got you about MVP baseball. 
Xbox gamers in particular don't have that uh, simulation AAA level baseball game. Is is it just is there is there just not a strong enough business case for something like that when you've got on one platform, Sony's platform, you've got a dominant game in that field. Is yeah. is it just a business decision? Well, it's both a business decision, it's an emotional decision, it's a license decision, it's an opportunity cost decision. There's stuff to do. I'm a huge baseball fan as well. I'm a Red Sox fan from my days of living in Boston yeah. and, and going to Fenway Park, realizing this feels different than than Candlestick when I was <laughs> living in San Francisco and falling in love with the Red Sox and everything that they have delivered for me since then in, in three World Series. Um, I love baseball. Uh, there is nothing to announce about baseball right now. Yeah, people ask about particularly MVP all the time. It's been a, I want to remind everybody, it's been a long time since we've done a baseball. Ten years. Yes. When the baseball license changed. Yeah. Uh, and so nothing further to talk about with baseball. I, had, I have to try. I don't need they, three strikes here. <laughs> they pay me to try. Uh, two more quick ones for you. Yeah. It, is the new is this new sort of beyond generations console model with the uh, the PlayStation Neo and the Xbox Project Scorpio? Do you do you see that as a third party uh, person who's was making software for all platforms? Is it good for the industry? Absolutely. I think it. it first of all, huge excitement the moment they're announced. Secondarily, I think it extends console generations. I, I can. There may be a time when, when, a, when you don't have hardware launches, there are just these updates. Yeah. Um, and I think Sony and Microsoft have done this incredibly well. Uh, they have taken what they needed to do, whether it's 4K in their minds, they needed to keep the platform fresh for, for, for technology that's moving faster than the, the archaic nature of a 10-year piece of hardware cycle yeah. that we all celebrate, and yet we go, man, you think the world's moving faster, and it is. And so uh, uh, we as Electronic Arts celebrate, and we've been working on uh, you know, uh, both platforms. And Neo, obviously, a little less information about, other than it exists. Uh, but, but we're very, very big fans about the way this, A, gives extra excitement, particularly the hardcore gamer who will go, I've got to have the latest and greatest. And, and the way I look at it as, as kind of my sales guy hat is that, he or she will take their console and it'll get refurbished or it'll go on Craigslist or eBay and it'll bring more gamers in there that, that for whatever reason didn't have the money or the resources or the time to play. I think it refreshes uh, mid-cycle, the excitement, and certainly obviously ups the technological output. Sure. And our dev teams love what they're seeing right now. Both, both of these. And then you don't even need remasters because it's just, it's all right? <laughs> We're not going back there again. Uh, Finally, you've told the story before on Unlock to Own last, last year, but uh, was it completely surreal seeing yourself parodied on South Park? <laughs> um, yes. I mean, <laughs> A, because you didn't know it was happening, and, and, and then B, you go, uh, where did all this come from? <laughs> um, are you flattered that Matt Stone and Trey Parker know who you are? <laughs> uh, yeah, the way they portrayed me may be not so flattering, but but yes. And, and, and you know, one of the things that, that I'll tell you about, I've got uh, actual cells of the game, of the, of the, episode, the episode, signed by Matt and Trey behind me at my desk. Um, I, I remember I was, um, I was on the East Coast, and, 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 and my son Tyler calls me or texts me. I come over and says, you were just on South Park. I'm going, <laughs> and what I thought he meant is that, that they have, pinged EA Sports in the past on Tiger Woods and what have you. So when I thought he was referring to you, he meant company, EA Sports. Yeah. I said, okay, well, what did they do to us this time? <laughs> and he said, no, you. 
And <laughs> so, and, and I always remember, it was not easy to find the episode at first. And uh, uh, I woke up the next morning and, and, and uh, yeah, ev everything was on fire with this. And so I laugh at it. Uh, it's funny, I, I addressed um, our new grads, and we have a great new grads program at EA yesterday. And final question was exactly <laughs> that. So I said, if my legacy, if the only thing is my legacy that everybody leaves me with, that I was, a, I was characterized on South Park, I, I, you know, both good news and bad news. Um, I love it. I watched it the other day again. I haven't watched it in years. Uh, people will come up to me and ask me to say uh, that good old EA sports saying, which I tend not to do. Uh, I think the episode is hilarious. The premise is hilarious. Um, the, the, the character couldn't be any further away from me, you know, with his cigars and his whiskey and his three-piece suit and his massive uh, EA Sports executive suite. It's hilarious. And, um, you know, I uh, accept my accent sounds more boss hog than it does Liverpool. But, uh, no, it's a lot of fun. And uh, it is not something that I did, uh, but it is something that a lot of people remember about me. And, and, and so it, it's fun to be able to revisit that. Well, Peter Moore, thank you so much. He is, the, of course, the chief competition officer at EA. Uh, you've got big plans, big yep. things coming up in the next uh, three years. We've got the whole thing yep. mapped out. Yep. We'll be keeping a close eye on you, but uh, you've always been a, uh, a great friend to the games industry in your time in it. And uh, thank you for taking an hour plus of your life here to sit down with me. It, it's almost cathartic, Ryan, to be able to disgorge all this information, and in particular, to be able to, to really verbalize my love of the industry and of gamers and everybody that makes this such an exciting place to well, be. Well, I'll be sure to bill you for this, for this therapy Please session. Please do, yeah. <laughs> uh, For much more on IGN Unfiltered from the best and brightest, most interesting, notable minds in the games industry, uh, subscribe on iTunes, YouTube, or IGN. And uh, for more from the greats like Peter Moore, keep it tuned right here to IGN.